Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer, where we discuss today's best ideas in personal finance and investing. The Best Interest is a personal podcast meant for entertainment purposes only. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation. Here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello and welcome to the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer and this is uh, episode 43 of the podcast. Got a few fun things to talk about today. To start with, uh, recently published a couple articles two weeks ago that I won't go into too much detail today, but you can go to bestinterest.blog if you want to read them. One of them is uh, a quarterly net worth report. So every quarter I publish a net worth report that simply states, you know, if I've been able to save money, how my investments have done, only because I want to be uh, transparent with you guys and show that I practice what I preach. I, I practice the budgeting methods that I preach. I practice the investing methods that I preach. And I want to show you guys what the results look like so that you know for yourself what's going on there. Then the second article that I'm not really going to get into detail uh, about is uh, it's about chess, actually. There's this uh, pretty big cheating scandal going on in the chess world. And I am very much a loose amateur fan of chess, and I know just enough to be dangerous, which isn't that much. But it's a pretty interesting story about cheating at the highest levels of chess. And the article I wrote, it's somewhat a breakdown of the timeline of the last month, like what happened, when it happened, how has the drama unfolded. And uh, I think I do a reasonable job from a journalistic point of view of explaining the, the series of events. But then also I get into a little bit about incentives because when I see the story, I see some interesting incentives where uh, many of the different people involved have incentives to defend themselves or defend their own point of view. Uh, Some people have incentives to kind of fan the flames through producing, for example, YouTube videos about what's going on. Uh, even there, there's a website that's trying to be this kind of in-between, uh, but they, they have an incentive uh, that motivates their actions. So the point being that um, there's this really famous quote, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcomes. Well, everyone's got their own incentives in this story, and so it's really hard to know who's being honest uh, or who is simply uh, defending their, their incentives. So I highly recommend that article, even if you're not a chess fan, because it'll, it'll catch you up quickly on what's going on there and then shed a, a little bit of light on uh, at least how I'm thinking about the, the different people involved and whether they're guilty, whether they're innocent, and, uh, and whether they're acting in good faith or not. But I do have a few things that are financially related to talk about today. And the first one is an article I wrote called Opportunity Paranoia and Six More Ways Your Brain Sabotages Your Money. Uh, This is something I've been thinking about a lot, and this article's kind of been a while in the making, just different ideas here or there. But it starts with this simple phrase, uh, which is probably the most significant outcome from psychologist Barry Schwartz's research described in his book called The Paradox of Choice. And the simple phrase is, less is more, too much is stressful. And then and then Barry Schwartz goes on to explain and he says, while increased choice allows us to achieve objectively better results, it also leads to greater anxiety, indecision, paralysis, and dissatisfaction. So I'll, I'll say that one more time. Increased choice 
leads to greater anxiety, indecision, paralysis, and dissatisfaction. This is known as the paradox of choice. You know, as our choices increase, a few choices make, tends to make us happier than no choices at all, but too many choices actually makes us unhappy. And this idea is most often applied to consumer scenarios. So for example, chocolate or vanilla, that dichotomy, is less stressful than here are our 50 flavors, you need to choose one. And uh, my personal favorite example uh, is why Costco, the store Costco, has such limited options. If you want peanut butter at Costco, here's your GIF. If you don't want peanut butter, that's fine. But you don't have to make a decision between 12 or 100 different brands like you might at a, at a Wegmans or another smaller grocery store. Uh, but when applied to personal decision-making, Schwartz's research is commonly called analysis paralysis. It's the inability to make a decision due to overthinking. Our own thoughts create too many choices, and we second-guess ourselves, we stall, we stress, we flail, and ultimately we fail. Now, this analysis paralysis it creates four major problems in day-to-day -day life. First, analysis paralysis, it lowers performance on mentally straining tasks. And on the blog, I have links to studies that back up um, all, these, all these assertions here. So analysis paralysis, it lowers performance on mentally straining tasks. Simply put, our brains have limited quote-unquote working memory. It's just like a computer. Uh, if you use that working memory on overanalyzing, you'll have less of it to use on more important tasks. Second, analysis paralysis kills creativity. When your brain is caught up in analysis, your creative synapses are less active. Third, analysis paralysis saps willpower. Uh, this is the so-called decision fatigue. Our brains have a finite willpower each day, and if you use all that willpower while paralyzed on one decision, you'll have nothing left over for later decisions. And fourth, uh, analysis paralysis ultimately makes you unhappy. Uh, this is the famous satisficer versus maximizer conundrum. Satisficers are people who solve a problem up until they're satisfied. Maximizers solve a problem until the solution is perfect. Uh, analysis paralysis, that is a maximizing behavior, but study after study shows that satisficers are happier than maximizers. So analysis paralysis, in other words, is, it's bad. And it certainly creeps its way into personal finance. I hear a new story every week. Uh, it's a significant and common source of financial stress. So here are six common ways that I see analysis paralysis in personal finances and what you can do to avoid it. The first one, too much thought over too small a purchase. Should you buy the $5 Jif peanut butter or the $4 store brand? Just, just stop, because every decision, big or small, hurts your willpower for the rest of the day. So don't waste a decision on $1 worth of peanut butter. Next, opportunity paranoia or the preoccupation with determining everything's opportunity costs. This is especially prevalent in the FIRE community, where the zealots view every facet of life through the lens of money and time. I could spend $50 on dinner, but if I invested that money, I might have $1,600 in 50 years. Well, sure, you could. Every decision today has a painful opportunity cost in the future, but skipping today's nice dinner and every nice expense ad infinitum might make you the unhappiest guy in the nursing home and the richest guy in the graveyard. This money, you can't take it with you. The next way analysis paralysis hurts your personal finances. Knowing everything before jumping in. 
If you insist on knowing everything about budgeting, investing, etc., before starting your personal finance journey, you'll stagnate on the starting line forever. Zero progress. There's nothing wrong with a little self-study, but you have to admit eventually, you can't get wet unless you jump in the pool. So set a deadline to take action and follow through. The next way that analysis paralysis hurts personal finance is through picking stocks, timing the market, and other pursuits of perfection in investing. It's so enticing for investors, like all people, to seek out I'm smarter than you scenarios. But time and again, the data shows that most professionals aren't smarter than the market. So what chance does an amateur have? Instead, diversify your portfolio, buy and hold, and keep a long-term mindset. Uh, fourth, the next one uh, comes from the Iyengar study, which there's a link to on the blog, which shows that the more investment choices in a 401k account, the less likely employees are to participate in it. That's just classic analysis paralysis. More choices equals more analysis, and more analysis is more paralysis. So the lesson there is to do your best to avoid scenarios with too many choices. The next way that analysis paralysis hurts personal finances, it's, I kind of took the opposite take on this one, automation is key. The decision to automate removes a hundred decisions in the future, if not more. So with banking, investing, budgeting, bill pay, most of it, if not all of it, can be automated. This is what Ben Franklin said hundreds of years ago, a stitch in time saves nine. One decision to automate today saves hundreds of decisions in the future. And the final way that analysis paralysis hurts your personal finances is by making perfect the enemy of good enough. This is similar, I suppose, to that maximizer versus satisfizer uh, uh, decision we talked about earlier. So my budgeting, my personal budgeting, is rarely perfect. I'll find myself at the end of the month, I'll reconcile my accounts, and I'll realize that, you know, $16.35 is, is missing and the balances don't quite line up. So I could spend 30 minutes reviewing every line item in my bank account and every line item in my budgeting software, and I might, I probably could, find that missing $16.35. Or I could just chalk it up to a mistake, realize that I spent the $16 on something, and just add in a fake $16 expense into one of my catch-all buckets in my budget. Knowing that I got $3,000 of monthly spending perfectly documented, my, my time and my brain power are worth more than a $16 mistake. And this brings me to perhaps my favorite quote from the book, The Paradox of Choice, which is, when asked about what they regret most in the last six months, people tend to identify actions that didn't meet expectations. But when asked about what they regret most when they look back on their lives as a whole, people tend to identify failures to act. Personal finance and investing can be cruel if you fail to act. So don't let analysis paralysis get in your way. And speaking of not acting in your personal finances, that brings me to the next article on the best interest, which is called Omission Commission: How Not Acting Can Cost You Millions. So commission, commission is the act of committing, it's doing something. Omission is the absence of action or doing nothing. 
Now, I like George Carlin. Maybe you haven't heard of George Carlin. He is a very famous comedian. Now, he, he's dead now, but he was very famous in the you know, 60s, 70s, 80s. He's extremely funny. But I've always had issue, uh, at least one issue, with his jokes about voting and the government. I could never quite put my finger on the issue, though. And secondly, I don't vote, because I believe if you vote, you have no right to complain. People like to twist that around, I know. They say, they say, well, if you don't vote, you have no right to complain. But where's the logic in that? If you vote and you elect dishonest, incompetent people and they get into office and screw everything up, well, you are responsible for what they have done. You caused the problem. You voted them in. You have no right to complain. I, on the other hand, who did not vote, who did not vote, who, in fact, did not even leave the house on election day. I'm in no way responsible for what these people have done and have every right to complain as loud as I want about the mess you created that I had nothing to do with. So the, the quote there that I want to focus on, right? You caused the problem. You voted them in. You have no right to complain. I, on the other hand, who did not vote, who in fact did not even leave the house on election day, am in no way responsible for what these people have done and have every right to complain as loud as I want to about the mess you created that I had nothing to do with. So that, that is really funny. But in writing this article, I, I realized my issue with Carlin's logic. He's suggesting that omission, his choice to not vote, by default, absolves him of responsibility. And I don't think I agree with that idea. And I'm not the only one. And that brings us to the famous trolley problem. It might be the most famous conundrum in all of philosophy. So the trolley problem is this. You're watching as a train heads down the tracks, straight towards five strangers tied to the rails. You can't run fast enough down the tracks to actually untie them and help them. But you can reach the track switch to divert the train onto an alternate track. But there's one problem, because another stranger is tied to the alternate track, just one stranger. In other words, just to emphasize what's going on, if the train keeps going the way it's going, it's going to run over five people. If you divert the train on the alternate track, it's going to run over one person. So what do you do? If you do nothing, omission, the train kills five strangers. But, but you didn't tie them there, right? You're nothing more than a coincidental, unfortunate bystander. So why should you feel any guilt over that? If you do pull the switch, commission, you save those five lives. But you also play executioner for the poor sap on the alternate rail. You're no longer a bystander, but, but you're taking an active role, including an active role in one poor guy's death. Omission kills five, commission kills one. So what should you do? We won't really try to answer it today, but we can say this. Both omission and commission have their costs. It might feel like omission bears less guilt, but that's just your feeling, and it's a biased feeling at that. Those five dead guys really wished you had chosen to act. And in fact, this biased feeling, it's well documented in psychology, and it's aptly named the omission bias. It's, a, it's, an, it's an irrational bias that we feel sometimes where we believe that not acting absolves us of guilt. So I recently listened to Joel Larsgaard, who's Joel from the, the very famous podcast, How to Money, and Ben Miller from the Chronify podcast. They were discussing a bunch of different personal finance ideas on Ben's podcast. 
And I loved how they framed omission and commission in personal finances. Investing is an act of commission. You choose to put your money at risk. Sometimes your capital grows and sometimes it doesn't. The commission of risk-taking, it leads to gains and it leads to losses. Now, omission is a decision to not invest. Typically, that means that you might deposit your money into a savings account at the bank. No risk, no gain, no loss. But is that right? Is there really no loss from omission? Because when I compare a couple basic investing strategies, commission, to not investing at all, omission, I really like the results from commission. So I took a look at a 60-40 portfolio, that's 60% stocks, 40% bonds, over the past 50 years. It has 9.9% compound annual growth rate with no seven-year periods of negative performance. And there are some charts showing you this data on the blog. Uh, so that was 9.9% per year for a 60-40 portfolio. Next, I looked at a 40-60 portfolio. 8.9% compound annual growth rate over the past 50 years with no five-year periods of negative performance. Finally, over the same five-year period, I looked at a savings account as measured by the federal funds rate. It returns an average of 5% per year. So that was 9.9%, 8.9%, and 5%. But we need to go one level deeper because over these same 50 years, we've seen average inflation at 3.9%, and that slowly erodes the value of our dollars. And that means the real returns of these three simple investments are 6% per year for the 60-40 portfolio, 5% per year for the 40-60 portfolio, and 1.1% per year for the savings account. 6%, 5%, 1.1%. So commission, even in a boring 60-40 or 40-60 format, provided 5 or 6% real returns per year, magnifying someone's spending power by over 1,100% over those 50 years. Was it a bumpy ride? Kind of, sort of, sometimes. There were some periods of, of negative performance. But a long-term investing mindset cures that. Omission, meanwhile, provided a 1.1% annual real return increasing spending power by 72%. So omission has no loss. Omission absolves us of responsibility. No way. I know what I'm voting for. All right, we had a listener question from Rhett, and Rhett asked, with prices for stocks and ETFs hitting yearly lows, which ones are you accumulating more of? Also, thoughts on the 2023 market looking forward? Good question, Rhett. Now, personally, I, uh, I do not practice much market timing. I don't practice much market prediction. Now, that said, uh, economic outlook isn't looking phenomenal right now, and we're most likely going to be entering an official recession. Some people say we're already there. There's some really cool data, though, showing um, when the stock market bottoms compared to when a recession bottoms. A recession bottoms, usually it's measured by gross domestic product, GDP. And, um, and usually, at least in this past six recessions, or I should say maybe the six most major recessions since, since World War II, the stock market has bottomed uh, four or five months before 
the economy itself has bottomed. Meaning, we, we know that the stock market tends to be forward-looking, right? All of the analysts, all the players in the stock market, they're doing their best to predict the future. And while as individuals, they might not be able to do so, as a collective, they're, they're pretty good at that. And what that means is that four or five months before a recession is, is starting to tick upwards, right? Four or five months before the very bottom of the recession, people in the stock market tend to look around and say, you know what, I think we're about to bottom and then we're going to start turning around. And that's when the stock market starts picking up. If you don't get that timing right as an investor, if what I should say is if you try to time it and don't get that timing right, um, in those same six recessions that I referred to before, if you had missed that timing by four or five months, uh, you would have lost out on 20 or 25% return each of those times. And if you know anything, I mean, 20 or 25% return, that's, that's like missing out two to two and a half, maybe even three years in the stock market. That's really significant. So my point of all this is I'm not trying to time the market. Uh, I'm not worried about the fact that the 2023, we might see a recession. We might see more pain in stocks. Uh, simply because if I get the timing wrong, I know what that penalty might be. And uh, I'm not willing to sit in the future, put myself in the year 2040, let's say, and look back at 2022, 2023 and say, shoot, my portfolio would be 20% higher if I had timed the market better. Or my portfolio would be 20% higher if I hadn't been such an idiot trying to time the market and failed. Right? Instead, I'm just staying the course. I'm staying in the market. My money is still there. I'm willing to put up with the ups and downs right now because I'm not selling anytime in the future. Well, anytime in the near future. I'm going to be selling in 25 years, something like that. And at that point, my expectation is that current market conditions will be a uh, simply a blip on the radar. Now, with prices of stocks and ETFs hitting yearly lows, which ones am I accumulating more of? I'm still dollar cost averaging. I'm still putting money into my Roth IRA, still putting money into my 401k, and I'm spreading that money around uh, into my diversified portfolio. So I'm buying broad uh, stock index funds, a, few, a couple mutual funds, uh, a tiny little sliver of bond funds, and a sliver of some alternatives um, every month. That's what I'm doing every month. And uh, that's what I'm going to continue doing every month for the next few decades. If I had a pile of play money right now and I had nothing to do with it, um, fans of the best interest know that I own a little bit of Berkshire Hathaway stock, the, the B shares, um, which let's see, right now they're trading at $265. Year to date, they're down 12%. And from their high, they're down, uh, their high was in March actually. And they're down 26% since then. So Berkshire Hathaway is a company that I am a fan of. I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger who run Berkshire Hathaway. So um, if I had some spare money and there was only one stock that I would put it into, that would be the one. But um, that's not really how I tend to invest. I, I only own Berkshire Hathaway because I think it's fun. I don't own it because I think I'm smarter than anyone else. Um my smart money goes into broad index funds. Boring, yes, but effective over the long run. I'd rather be boring and effective than exciting and wrong. Thanks, Rhett, for the question. Keep them coming.
And listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you want to send your questions in, you can email jesse at bestinterest.blog, or you can go to the blog, go to the podcast page, and on the podcast page, there's this little thing called SpeakPipe, where you can just press a button and you can record your question, and then I'll get the audio file, and I'll throw the audio file straight into the podcast. Or if you'd want, you can probably just record the audio on your phone and send me that audio file via email. Either way, whatever you want to do. Oh, and one more thing. You might listen to other podcasts, and you might wonder, why do all these podcasters ask me to rate and review their podcasts? It's a great question, and the answer is, well, it kind of helps our podcasts grow. And in the long run, you know, if I'm trying to get this information in front of more people, if I'm trying to help more people with their, with, on their personal finance journey, it's helpful to get it in front of more ears. So rating and reviewing the podcast is a great way to do that. So if you enjoyed this podcast, if it helped, the favor I would ask of you is to go to Spotify, go to Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. You can just go right in the app on your phone. And, and if you're so inclined, leave a five-star rating and leave a review of the podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. 